0: Hofstra's Hofstra's Morning morning Wake wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National
1: National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students.
2: You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University.
0: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees.
2: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
1: Good morning, everybody, and a great morning it is because we have everybody for the Tuesday show in today. Welcome to the morning wake-up call on 88.7 FM WRHU. Today on the docket, we got plenty of stories to get to. Uh, we do have the shooting of 6 year old Ralph Laurel to, y- Yarl to get with updates through there. Uh, we also have our interview with Professor Richard Himmelfarb coming up that Kevin did a little while back. And then also some more updates on the TikTok instances in the United States government. Otherwise, though, we are going to kick it on to you after the spot here. And welcome back. Uh, granted, I know I'm excited because, hey, we're, we're all together again, right? It's a good time. We got everybody here for Tuesday. So I know it's been a bit busy lately. I know we've had a lot of stuff going on and, you know, getting to. So how, how are we feeling when, uh well, finals are only now, I think, 30, well, commencement, I think it's only about 33 days away now, right? Isn't that somewhere around there? Luke?
2: You know how much I despise people saying G-word, graduation, and the mm. C-word, commencement, as an underclassman with a lot of upperclassmen friends. So it does kind of hurt my heart a little bit that some of you guys will be leaving us, but very proud of each and every one of you.
3: Probably something I should know. What is the difference between graduation and commencement, though? Commencement is just the ceremony. Okay, and then you actually graduate whenever you're done. Yeah. Okay.
2: Commencement is just you, like, getting your little diploma. And well, Luke's staying, so. Yeah, Luke's still going to be with us. but I'll, I'll move around. But, however, it's still like he's graduating and leaving. And
3: yeah, it is. it's totally different after. Yeah. I'm going to be mm. a big crybaby
2: about it. But I'm manifesting that the weather is super duper nice for everybody who is graduating and commencement, especially since people are taking their senior pictures recently.
1: I was going to say, it doesn't matter either way, though, because it's, it's indoors. I know. I wish yeah. it was
2: outside. I mm. wish we did it at the lacrosse stadium, like Schwart. Schwart?
3: Sh- 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 yeah, Sh- I think it's short yes. Sh- Sh- well, that would be smart. I don't know why they don't. Uh, it
1: would make sense.
3: I guess mm. inside is easier to plan just in case there is that rainy day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it avoids any potential issues. You go outside they, afterwards, I guess.
1: They didn't amount, announce yet who's doing the speaking yet. They haven't said? No. Who did I, last I've been, time? Uh, so last time, oh gosh, I didn't even know who was last time. Oh, it was, oh, Mayor Adams did the law school commencement. Oh. And that was the, oh, and um, Mary Lou Galvez in December. She's the, uh, like, uh, I guess chief operating officer, I guess you could say, of uh, WABC7.
2: That's cool. So Shout out to the, all the comms kids. Um.
1: So
3: hopefully another legend does mm-hmm. yours, Luke. I, I don't know. I we'll, had we'll a dream. Out.
2: I had a dream that Waka Flocka did my commencement speech. That's a weird
1: dream. What would Waka Flocka flames say about That's one of the weirdest dreams
3: ever.
2: <laughs> I had a good time. He was just like, life is short, live it to the live it up.
3: Remember when he ran for president?
2: Yes. I think
1: that's As a
3: twenty eight year old felon.
1: <laughs> Which good for him. Good for him. Why not? Um I isn't Afro man running for president president? Yes. Yeah. yeah. One Which, of
3: the better candidates in the twenty twenty four. I was, was gonna
1: say, you know, but,
2: but I my dream that Waka Flocka was my commencement speaker. I say mine, like I was the only one graduating. Like they were You day. say yours,
3: like you were the only person that had the dream.
2: Listen, I don't know what other people dream about, Kevin.
3: No one else had this dream. Um, mm.
2: it just reminded me that like life is short, and you should live it up and have a good time and focus on protecting your peace. And that's my little um advice for. Mon- tuesday not monday oh my gosh that's my advice for tuesday
1: you have days days are getting long they're going by quick and then you don't know what day it is but exactly. we, i guess we'll get moving because i know we do have our dallas's dish to get to because the dallas's dish is short so we want to make sure to get that going before the time comes and a lot of updates i know dallas so mm-hmm. definitely go on ahead and take it away
2: so, yesterday Monday, two people were arrested on charges that they helped establish a secret police station in NYC on behalf of the Chinese government, and about three dozen officers with China's National Police Force were charged with using social media to har- harass dissidents inside the United States, according to officials. Across the country, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office will be reviewing sexual assault allegations against actor Army Hammer, And down in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday threatened to build a prison or competing theme park near the Magic Kingdom or potentially raise taxes on Walt Disney World in retaliation against the company for resisting the state's takeover. And beyond our planet, SpaceX is targeting a Thursday launch date to launch its Starship, which will be the most powerful rocket ever built. And finally, in North Carolina, a 13 year old boy has been banned from an amusement park for one year after getting trapped inside a claw machine in attempts to get a prize. The boy climbed inside a comic XL bonus game to get a stuffed animal and had to be rescued by a medical response team. The boy is well, but will no longer be allowed at that theme park. And that is it for Dalsha's Dish this morning.
1: People, you really don't need that squishmallow, okay? It's you not not don't need it that it's bad. It's not that deep. It's not no. that deep. I got a great Squishmallow in my room, Gordon the Shark. He wants to run his own nonprofit. That's all I need, all right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy with that. If you want to get your duck face Squishmallow, go ahead and do what you want to do. Uh, but granted, I don't I don't think it's that much. You just need to go and climb into a claw machine.
2: Exactly. And I also, like, I don't know, whenever I hear about stories like this for, like, younger people, my brain is always like, my parents would never, my parents would never allow if they saw this happening,
1: they'd be like, get out of there. What are you doing? Back in my day, you had to pay your quarter in the slot <laughs> machine.
3: It's a good Dallas dish. Five courses today. Five That's courses. right. Loaded Wait. up. I'm interested in the first one, the Chinese secret police station.
2: Yeah, I got that from the AP. Um, no real updates uh, as of this morning. Obviously, the story broke yesterday, so we're still going to be waiting to see. But I want to know like, the dirt behind this. Like, How did they establish a secret police station in New York City? What does it mean by a secret police station? How strongly were they working with, like, the Chinese national government? Um, also, like, that's kind of crazy. I like espionage stuff in terms of movies and films, to clarify. Mm. Um, so this is interesting to me, but it's also, like, matter of national security, question mark. You know, something to look look
1: towards. We, we were talking in before the show about the whole uh, Governor DeSantis and Walt Disney World yeah. spat that's going on and we're just like Walt Disney World used to be a swamp so I feel like if they want to do something beneficial you could just make a marsh nearby again and kind of have the Everglades kind of show exactly. up but I boost know well,
2: the ecosystem of the area, something yeah. like that.
1: But I'm, oh, I'm gonna build a prison
3: because I feel like I should punish Walt Disney World. Why? Uh, why even? It's the largest economic draw for your state. Mm-hmm. Why even punish? The largest employer too,
1: I think. Right? Yeah. yeah it is. Runner. There's
3: no. There's no logical reason aside from just. Being more powerful than Disney World, or they
1: or they make a make a space where it's you know when you get lost at a theme park, but it's like a larger space for the people that get lost at oh, the theme park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've never seen that, one of those. No, you no. get you get like sure a little. They spot. They'd be like, Jimmy, please come down. You know, oh <laughs> yes, I was looking to get you. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I do think
2: it's a mainly just like a power thing. Like I feel like he's greatly feels threatened by Walt Disney World as a force, which understandable. It's like a huge corporation that just can for a very long time was able to do basically kind of whatever it wanted
1: which i do think is too large but that's a different story
2: yes that's a different story i could agree on that point but however like kevin said you can't like ignore the all the positive it's brought to the state of florida Mm. in terms of like travel commerce just like um the job market
1: in general you're not talking about universal orlando you know exactly
2: and i'm just like this feels kind of petty Like, I don't like describing politicians as petty, but they're often some of the pettiest people on the planet. And then him being like, I'm going to build a whole prison. I'm going to build a competing theme park. Good luck with that. Have fun building a theme park to compete with the Magic Kingdom that has been established for a 100
1: years? No, no, it's only 50.
2: 50? Okay. So Walt Disney as a company is like 100 years old or whatever, but yes, Magic Kingdom is 50 years old.
3: Yeah, because... What, probably like almost 100? Because when, uh, no, no, Disney... when was the Steamboat Willie? Well, it's, it's older than 100, but they're actual significant. So Nigeria. Disney
1: Animation Studios was 100, was 100 this year. Okay. A Steamboat Willie, I well, I know Mickey Mouse in the public domain, I believe. It's got to like be at least 90. Two. Which is crazy that Mickey Mouse might be in the public domain. I think Steamboat Willie is probably 19, oh gosh, let's find out here. 28, actually.
3: 1928. Oh. Okay. um I'm looking at an old quote here. That's probably taken out of context, possibly. It's Daily Mail. Ron DeSantis says, Old Guard Republicans are not up to taking on the left's hijacking of big business. Is he trying to do that right now? I guess taking so. Take down big business? I, mean, I guess theory. so, or
2: establish himself as more powerful than Walt Disney, because I guess, from my perspective, Walt Disney has, I don't want to say has been above the law, but has just been like, we make our own laws. And I do understand how, like, as a governor or as a politician... For your state, that could be, like, concerning to have a body that powerful and strong be able to do that. But, however, it's literally Disney. Like, Disney will always have that amount of power. You can't just take that away. And Walt Disney World in general, I think, brings a lot of positives, as we mentioned before. So, they aren't really doing anything inherently negative from my perspective.
3: I think if, if Walt Disney World wanted to, they could move states Completely relocate the theme park, and there would be states that would gladly welcome them. Into their domain. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, but then you got to get reestablished, and it obviously wouldn't make any sense, right? What would it they wouldn't. do with the re- like? They're not going to just something
2: that they could threaten. They could be like, "We're just going to leave." Just like
1: he's starting to put a prison. Next also,
2: to it. also, if they left, what are you going to do with that land? I was going to say it's not Nothing.
1: like it's a fun job where it's like we'll go and move, push Bikini Bottom and move it somewhere else. You exactly. can't, you can't do yeah. that, obviously.
2: And also, if they just leave, I could imagine that they would take down all of the park structures and just leave. A skeleton of Disney World, and you mm. can't sell that property. Nope. You can't do anything with that property. So it'd just be like a wasteland. It'd be
1: like a uh, Michael Jackson Neverland Ranch. You know, it kind of looks like Disneyland, <laughs> yeah. but then it just kind of just gets sits sitting there. there. Mm-hmm.
2: So I think it's like a big um, power move by Disney to be like, we could just
1: leave. Like, we don't have to be here. Well,. And- one thing we have to be is here so we gotta we gotta keep talking what we got kevin i know we got the weather it's been okay it's not it's not the i guess greatest weather you would like but it's been it's been okay so what what can we expect for the rest of the weather for today
3: not so bad today a little disappointing following our great last seven or eight days it's 49 degrees outside of our studios here at hofstra and up in the sky, the rest of the day should be sunny. It's going to be a little bit windy as well and a high of 59 degrees during the day with a low of 46 in the
1: evening. All right, not too bad. I, I had a friend's birthday party we were outside last night. It was getting windy, though, at the mm. end of it. So that, that was something there. But.
2: That That's the one thing that I feel like if Long Island could stop being so windy, mm-hmm. everything would be... Not as bad, like, temperature-wise.
1: When you go by the dorms and Oh, no my trees, gosh. It's a wind tunnel. It's a wind tunnel. I
2: feel like I'm going to get knocked over every morning when the wind's above, like, six miles per hour. Mm. I don't really know how miles per hour works in terms of wind. No idea. don't know if that's that fast, but.
3: That's pretty, uh, that's mm-hmm. significant.
2: Okay, the wind's very strong. Thank you, Kevin, for affirming my That's fears.
3: significant for a walker.
2: Mm-hmm. It's mm. too much. It's too Growing much.
3: Growing up here, I'm pretty used to it. Mm-hmm. But I guess you, you got a point that. Coming from any non-island or non-coastal place, is there's not going to be any wind.
2: Mm-hmm. It's also just like the fact of the way the buildings are structured, at least like uh, Luke said, the towers. And also like New York City in general, they just funnel wind in a way where it's just, you can't fight it. You can't fight it. You can't try to avoid it. You just got to adapt. You just yeah. have to face it. Hey, April showers it.
1: bring many flowers, though, so that's good. We're getting <laughs> oh, ready for those. I hope
2: it doesn't rain.
1: I don't like Dallas rain. hates
3: rain yeah. and flowers. So oh. Rough two months.
2: Listen, I don't hate flowers. I don't like flowers as gifts because they're going to die.
3: Unless it's from Pub Safety or the Grounds Crew. The oh. Grounds
2: Crew this morning gave me, one of the Grounds Crew members, gave me a bouquet of fake flowers on my little walk. And at first I was just like, oh, I really don't like real flowers. And then I realized they were fake flowers, but they were really pretty fake flowers. So I'm just like, day made, morning unbeatable, nothing can stop my flow. Um, But again, (laughs) I just don't like real flowers as gifts because they're going to die and they're just like going to start smelling after a little while. And I'm just like,
1: Mm. ugh. Well, we'll we'll stick it around here. Maybe we'll get some flowers one day in the office. In the Office, I don't know, station. Whatever. whatever we sure. I think we the earned CD. them. Yeah. Hey. You know, we 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 got four of Marconis. We have
2: four Marconis, and we haven't gotten four flowers. Four Marconis,
3: no flowers. They never, man. That's thanks. Would you trade a Marconi for some flowers right now, Luke? No. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly,
2: no. <laughs> I don't think so.
1: I do. I do like cherry blossom stuff. Cherry blossoms. blossoms are are, I oh. have a cherry
2: blossom tattoo on my arm. Nice. With my mom. Shout out my mom.
1: Miss
3: Jackson. Does anyone ever sing Ms. Sorry Ms. Oh, it's All, the the time. Time.
2: All the time. All the time. That's mm-hmm. got to be yep. you got to be
3: tired of that song. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and
2: I love Outkast but I am tired. The amount of times like at least like once a week somebody will like hum it under their breath and they're just like oh, sorry. Uh. Like I didn't mean it like that. I'm just like no, listen. The joke's been made since I was in kindergarten so we got to we gotta move along.
3: Look, we don't have Miss uh, Jackson and Zeta, do we? No, we do. I played it once, yeah. Alright, that's gotta be It's gotta be our first one. Alright, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll throw it in when I can, but we, I know Dallas said we gotta move along a little bit, and we got some stories to get to for now. Kevin, we're actually gonna go with yours first on the Ralph Laurel, so take it away. Go ahead.
3: Alright, so we were talking about it before the show. I'm sure everyone's heard about it, because this
1: is a couple days
3: in the making now. Really frightening story. 16-year-old boy named Ralph Jarl was shot this weekend by an 85-year-old man. Yarl was going to pick up his two younger brothers when he knocked on the wrong door and he was shot Fortunately, a quick rush to the hospital may have saved the teen's life. He now recovers at home. For the shooter, Andrew Lester, he's facing two felony charges and he defended himself by saying that he lives alone. He heard the doorbell ring right before going to bed. He then saw a black man pulling on his storm handle, storm door handle, and felt his actions were in the name of defense. Authorities are investigating whether or not the crime had any racial motivation behind it, but said there is nothing on that front as of now. that information is from the AP, so really, really scary story, I mean, kid, 16-year-old kid, if you see the picture of me, looks like he could be 13, I mean, young-looking kid, knocks on the door to pick up his younger brothers, Could <laughs> you've knocked on a worse house and gets shot, uh, frightening stuff.
2: I think, the f- obviously, the age of the person who did this has something to do with it being like 85 or 84, and the uh, person... Andrew Lester said he lives alone, so he was scared. He said, quote, I was scared f- to death due to the boy's size, according to a document that was uh, showed to the court. Um, for me, personally, I just think I don't like how in society our first instance is fear or hesitation or just general judgment. And sh- Obviously, it's a testament of the times that we live in. But this is a, like a kid. Mm-hmm. Like He does not look like a grown person. Adult. He's 16, but as Kevin said, he looks 13, and being scared to death due to the size. If you look at pictures of him, he appears to be kind of tall, but a like really lanky, skinny kid. And I just don't. I can't imagine my first instinct ever being, I need to immediately start shooting at this person.
1: I'm. I'm honestly surprised he survived because he got shot in the head. Yeah. And then he got. And then they shot him again.
2: Exactly. So I think the fact that he shot him multiple times also immediately just feels like there's some sort of aggression towards uh, this child in general and it just doesn't sit well with me in my spirit the fact that this person is relying on the fact that they were scared to death of a 16 year old who if you look at pictures of him looks early teens at best
1: and And just one once I mention Andrew Lester is a white, and Ralph Yarl is black, just to I reiterate there mm-hmm.
3: and um Andrew Lester didn't get arrested. he's facing charges, yep, there's been serious protests going on outside of his house.
1: They egged where, his house,
3: yeah, where he's currently saying, and I read through the the c n n article here. It says about Ralph Jarl, a section leader in a marching band who could often be found with an instrument in hand, had been looking forward to graduating from high school and visiting West Africa before starting college, according to a GoFundMe started by his aunt Faith Spoonmore. That's, it's, once you add an element to even the human being that the 16-year-old is, then... It just puts so much more. Mm-hmm. Kid's in band. He, he wants to graduate high school. He's going to college. This is obviously, you could. I, I could tell by the picture of him that he's a really just nice kid. And,
1: you, and, could, you could just tell. I was going to say, Dallas, I know we mentioned before the show, but you were saying like at least when you know, your first instant when you go to the door isn't, oh, I'm going to go grab my gun because exactly. someone's at my door. My first door.
2: instinct is if somebody who I don't know is knocking on my door, I would see what they need. I would ask them through the door if I could help them. He's apparently, like, according to the story, as Kevin said, he's looking to pick up his two younger brothers. So he's looking for his siblings. And I would just be like, oh, wrong address. You got the wrong place. But the fact that your first instinct was to, you saw that it was a black child. I don't want to call him a black man. I've heard people, like, on the news refer to him as a black man. He's 16, so he's a child. Like, let's call it as it is. He's a kid um and your first instinct is to arm yourself and feel the need to just start shooting like i don't know what transpired between the two of them i don't know if words were exchanged but the fact that you opened fire on a stranger point blank period with no indication to my knowledge that they were an actual real threat to your safety
1: and, of course, the, you know, the kid's going to be nervous because if he's going to pull on the handle, it's probably like, why isn't my door open? Because mm-hmm. he thought it was the house, mm-hmm. right? So then, you know, for him, he's going to be a little nervous in that mm-hmm. sense. But it, it shouldn't be on, you know, the 80-year-old guy's the instance to just be like, oh, I'm just going to do something.
2: Exactly. And my thing is, like— Why not help
1: out the kid? You
2: exactly. Know? Like, like give it. him directions if he's lost. Mm-hmm. My big thing is, you should not be killed— this is not, like, a hot take, I promise you. You should not be killed for making a mistake, like, finding the wrong, like, getting the address wrong. You should not be killed for, like, this doesn't apply to this case, but in cases of people getting killed for, like, shoplifting mm. or things like that.
1: George Floyd with the counterfeit law. Yeah, yep.
2: that shouldn't result in you no longer being able to live. Um, So that's just my overarching two cents on the matter of Unarmed people getting murdered.
3: Also, the family set up a GoFundMe, as I just mentioned, and it's almost $3 million oh, wow. since. So GoFundMe really has provided some great stories. They The, the amount of donations, when it's done properly and ab- actually advertised, is pretty incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. it, at least nothing can make up for what happened to the family. Mm. And they did also said that they expect or they hope for a full recovery and- I mean, what a miracle. The fact he's even cognizant right now. The fact he's alive is crazy. Mm -hmm. And to have a full recovery would be pretty remarkable. And uh, then, you know, the family ends up with almost $3 million at least on the other end. Like I said, not a good trade off for the family. I'm sure that they would rather have it the way it was on Friday, you know, but um, it at least adds a little bit of an easier. I don't want to say easier, but you, but know what you I'm don't saying. have
2: to worry about like medical bills. Yet. Yeah,
3: exactly. And then you can send your kids to college, you mm-hmm. can it just for a family that's going to go through so much over the next however many years mm. recovering from this, it makes life a lot easier. And like
2: you mentioned, this isn't going to be like once he's released out of the hospital. That's still not the end of like the pain and suffering. Because I can't imagine you would feel comfortable doing a lot of things after going through this terrifying ordeal of you just looking for your siblings and then resulting in being critically injured. Like, I can't imagine surviving through that and then just having to go through normal everyday life. Yeah. Which you, I can't imagine that you can. And it's also like, going back to a point earlier in this discussion, um, according to the CNN article, on the night of the shooting, um, Andrew Lester was taken into custody but was released less than two hours later um, as two representatives at the Kansas City Police Department told CNN... Um, somebody said that Lester was released because police recognized that, quote, more investigative work needed to be done. I feel like the shooter should still stay in custody, even while more investigative work needs to be done, because you know that he's the shooter. You know he did this. Um, sure, we have to figure out what transpired in between, um, Ralph Yarrow knocking on his door Mm -hmm. and then shots being fired, but however- you could still consider this man armed and dangerous. So the fact that he was released two hours later, like under two hours later, and he still hasn't been arrested formally is leaving a bad taste in my mouth.
3: Yeah. The the lawyers for the family, for the Jarl family, also represented the families of Amada Arbury and George Floyd.
1: It's uh, Ben Crump, I think. Yeah.
3: Yep. And they... As we expect, said there could be no excuse for the release of this armed and dangerous suspect after admitting to shooting an unarmed, non-threatening... Oh, so he admitted to def- doing it. Well, he admitted to doing it because he defended himself. Oh, that's year. right. Yeah, So, self-defense. It, without saying, I did it, he told them he did it and go easy on me, basically. Mm-hmm. So, he, he definitely did it, and I agree. I don't know how he ends up back. You could make the argument he's, at this point, harmless... But still, I mean, what, mm-hmm. what president He shot him. Send? He shot
2: him multiple times. Yep. Like, one shot, still bad. Yes. Still bad. But the fact of the matter is, according to the CNN article once again, um, Ralph fell to the ground after being shot the first time, and then Andrew Lester fired again, shooting him in the arm, according to what Ralph told the police. The fact that he was on the ground and had already been shot, and then you felt the need to shoot him again. And then, again, according to Ralph, he said that Andrew Lester said, quote, don't come around here, end quote, after before Ralph ran away to go to ne- multiple homes to ask for people to h- call the police and help him. Which is just, like, feels microaggressive. Not even microaggressive, but, like, macroaggressive to me. Um, doesn't sit well with me. Very, very scary. And I can't imagine how a 60-year-old child how terrifying that would be. Yeah.
3: I would think not to go too much into what how I would defend my home with a gun, because I don't ever plan on doing it, but I would think that if, I, if it was not anything more, so if it was not a racially incentivized hate act, I would think I would answer the door with the gun, if I thought I had to defend myself, and not just shoot it r- seemingly right away. Exactly. I would at least have some conversation or maybe point it if I felt I needed to. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I'm not a gun owner or user, so I can't say for sure. But this it just feels there's so much that has to go into it as far as investigations go, but it doesn't feel like a clean-cut accident while defending yourself. Yeah, I'm
1: just going to note, Andrew Lester, at least as of right now, has not been charged with a hate crime. That could be changed, if mm-hmm. anything. Uh, but there is just a quote here from the AP itself. Uh, it says, Missouri is among roughly 30 states who, quote, stand your ground, end quote, laws, which allow for the use of deadly force in self-defense. But the prosecutor determined the shooting was not in self-defense.
2: Because, uh, also deeper into the CNN article, it's kind of like somebody, Andrew Lester said that, ralph Yarl was like pulling on his door according to ralph he said he just rang the doorbell and he did not pull on the door so he obviously conflicting stories that we need to get to the bottom of what really happened mm. i'm more willing to side with the 16 year old who didn't who was shot twice yeah. than the 84 year old man who did the shooting but again that's my prerogative you don't have to believe what i believe but that's so terrifying, and I can't imagine being a neighbor who like sees like a child covered in blood.
1: I wonder if there are witnesses, help. like if anybody.
2: There, there are. Um, so, so a neighbor who has not been identified told CNN that she called nine one one after Ralph came to her door bleeding.
1: Um, she, oh, so he was able to get up yes, and go. He to got a, up and oh, ran for help. Oh my gosh.
2: Um, she was. She said she was compel- com She said that the police told her to stay inside since they didn't have the exact location of the shooter. Um uh until like an emergency operator came to ensure her safety. Um she said she then went outside with towels to help suppress the bleeding and the quote is, This is somebody's child. I had to clean blood off my door, off my railing. That was somebody's child's blood. I'm a mom. This is not okay. End quote. And I think that summarizes it perfectly. That is somebody's child. Mm. It is a child. It's very, very sad. Um sad does not Begin to like surmise all the feelings and emotions behind it, but it's a tragic thing to see in our country that this keeps happening and it affects children who should have long, he- healthy, happy, untraumatized lives. Mm-hmm. No matter what, um,
1: so yeah. Well, we can only hope for the best for for Rafael there. So hopefully, he makes a full recovery. Which I again, you know, miraculous how he has already been able to, you know, still be. Uh, here with us which is great uh, but granted we're going to go and get on to our next spot through here we actually have uh, Mikey I know you got your uh, interview spot here uh, for the Fox News and Dominion case so we just want to go and intro that for us go ahead
0: yeah so as, as for today uh, the Fox Dominion case officially kicks off Fox is being f- sued for 1.6 billion dollars for defamation now I got a chance to sit down I to sit down with somebody to discuss the trial and kind of the implications of it uh, by the name of Kai Von Schaff. And he worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And he gives some pretty good insight. So let's take a listen. All right. For Newsline, I'm Michael Dent here with Kai Von Schoff to discuss the implications of the Fox trial. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to join you. I wanted to start off by asking from a PR perspective what does this mean for Fox? You know, I think it's uh, quite the disaster for them. And you have to sort of zoom out to the broader context. This Dominion lawsuit is obviously getting headlines, but this is really coming after years of Fox dealing with big issues, including losing major advertisers year after year because of stars like Tucker Carlson really becoming so extremist that, you know, mainstream advertisers don't want to associate with the Fox News brand. Now, of course, this case, I mean, they're being sued for a 10 million dollar, I mean, sorry, 10 figure. Uh, $1.6 billion uh, lawsuit here. So that's a huge blow to this network. And also they're losing, it seems, even among their own viewers, who recent polling has showed one in five Fox viewers trust the network less after this lawsuit. So really, they're getting attacked from all sides here. I was actually going to jump into that with the viewership and trust. What kind of implications does this have for not only Fox News, but other media outlets as well? Sure. So I think one of the things people are talking about in relation to this case, and actually in relation to, if you remember a couple years ago, um, Sarah Palin's case against the New York Times, this idea of revisiting what's the the actual malice standard, which comes up in these defamation cases. And it requires that to hold somebody accountable for defamation of a public figure or celebrity, you have to show that um, the person spread knowingly false information or had reckless disregard for the truth. Um, so it's a pretty high bar to show. And unbelievably, in this case, it seems pretty apparent that Dominion has strong evidence to be able to prove that case. But sort of the larger picture here that has some in media concerned is that conservatives on the Supreme Court seem willing to reevaluate that actual malice standard, which has been around for quite some time now, um, possibly making it easier to sue publications, which could have a chilling effect You know, if you can imagine a scenario where sort of every billionaire who doesn't like what's been written about them starts suing, you know, smaller publications into the ground, regardless of truth, that could be a problem for the media landscape. So people are worried about that outcome. I think this is a particularly clear cut case, it seems like. So either we'll see a settlement and that issue won't be raised or, you know, Dominion's probably poised for a pretty strong win. Now, we've seen in the past the difference between or the argument between Fox News and Fox Entertainment. Fox was on trial. They said that they were an entertainment company, not a news company. So wondering, how big a role do you think that statement will play in this? I don't know that that's going to work for them here. I think you know the, the judge has already made it pretty clear that that sort of line of reasoning and argument is not going to work in this case, um, and that was their main line of defense. I think you know it's going to be a pretty disastrous scenario if Fox has to go to trial here and tease out that exact issue and question that you've raised because it'll expose that most of their news isn't really as professional as I think the industry standard would be. It's really, you know, the business model is sort of their extremist commentary and that's what they kowtow to. And we have, you know, we've seen already a preview of some of the text with big stars, the opinionator stars who are allegedly not the news people telling people what the news people should cover. So that's a pretty bad, uh, you know, crossing of the lines there. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Great to join you.
1: Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life. National National
0: news news. and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students.
2: If you are just now tuning in, you're listening to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra morning wake-up call here on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. Thank you to Mikey Dent for that awesome interview. And you are joined again by myself, Dallas Jackson, Luke Farrell, and Kevin Bunk. We're going to get into a little bit of an international spin on things and looking towards Vladimir Karamirza, a prominent Russian human rights advocate and a vocal critic of the Kremlin who has been sentenced to 25 years in prison after publicly denouncing Moscow's war in Ukraine. For context, Kara was originally detained one year ago, coming hours after he interviewed with CNN after he criticized Russian President Vladimir Putin's, quote, regime of murders, end quote. Kara was on trial for a multitude of criminal offenses, including treason, spreading fake news, and facilitating activities of an undesirable organization. Last year, Russia officially criminalized criticism of the military, and the court said he would, quote, serve his sentence in a strict regime correctional colony, end quote. Mirza will appeal the sentence, as he sta- as stated by his lawyer, Vadim Porokov, to CNN on Monday night. Mirza has been strongly critical of Putin and has also survived two poisonings in his entire life.
1: I think I actually remember hearing about this. I don't know if it was in CNN or was CBS Sunday morning, but someone had gotten the interview with him, as you mentioned before. And it, it was just a crazy story. Like he was a part of the whole system and then he got out of it and then he's like, okay, I'm going to go and expose everybody. And then he was, I think he was living in the United States, right, somewhere mm-hmm. in like Alaska or something. And then I, But how did they detain him though? Because I thought he was...
2: I don't know the logistics of how he was detained. He was just doing a CN- an interview with CNN and he was like talking about how he's so against what the Moscow Moscow officials are doing, especially Vladimir Putin. And suddenly he's now in prison. And he's been detained for a year, and now he's finally getting sentenced for 25 years in prison just for um, speaking out against the war in Ukraine. And as mentioned before, Russia did officially criminalize being critical of the military, which is such a dystopian idea coming from the United States—like being from the United States— and knowing that we have that freedom protected, and to know that if you ever just want to be like, "Hey, I don't support what the military is doing right now," you could go to jail and face serious time is a scary thought to have.
3: Have you seen the picture of him in the courtroom? It's
2: crazy. Isn't like, a,
1: he's in like a, you ever see the Avengers? Uh, if anyone's yes. out there, you ever see the Avengers? Uh, Loki's when, in the box. Yeah, yeah he's, in he's in one of the, those. Exactly what, what it looks glass like. Container. Yep. It's like a, a fishbowl.
2: A glass container in the middle of the room for his sentencing, what? which is just like.
1: So scary. I was gonna say, what what is a strict regime correctional colony?
2: I don't know. They don't really get into it, but it sounds not cool.
1: It I does think not it's sound fun. Four words you do not want to hear, and where you're gonna get mm-hmm. placed.
2: And it's like it's it's when you dig into the CNN article, it's very frightening to see how afraid his family is. Like his wife is very afraid for his well-being. Because apparently his health has already been declining just in general. I don't know if it's a testament to the two poisonings he survived, or is it just like general age. But according to his lawyer, his health has been declining um, just over the past couple of years. And on top of that, like his kids are just really scared that A, they might never see their father again. B, they don't know how he'll be taken care of while he's like away. If he does end up if the sentencing does go through and he does end up getting put in prison, um, they're just really worried about him. But Karamazov has been kind of in good spirits, and he said he's very proud of his political views. And he said, quote, I'm in jail for my political views for speeding, speaking out against the war in Ukraine, for many years of struggling against Putin's dictatorship, for facilitating the adoption of personal international sanctions under the um, Magnitsky Act against human rights violators. Not only do I, n- do I not repent any of this, I am proud of it. So he's still standing by and keeping the same energy, which I greatly respect.
3: So strict regime correctional colony is where he's going. It's a penal colony, but it looks like, if you look at it, like World War II concentration camp, the visual of it from the outside, there's it's just barracks, so it's not cells, and it's just forced labor mm. the entire time that you're in the colony. So that is where he is headed. Hopefully not forever, but... Doesn't seem promising.
2: Listen, he said he's going to um, appeal the sentence, sentencing, but it, as Kevin said, it does not look very promising, especially with how um, Russia handles cases like this.
1: Now, it is important to note, he does have dual Brit- British and Russian citizenship, so if there is any indication of, you know, you never really like to go with these things, but a I guess prisoner swap or exchange uh, that could be placed, there is that mm. opportunity, but I, I don't know how much is really going to be uh, inputted with that because I think the Kremlin have been looking for him for a long time or at mm-hmm. least trying to get him on something and I guess they figure that they can just do this now because apparently they passed an act when uh, Russia started the invasion of Ukraine where you can't speak out and spread false information about the military that's kind of how they're trying to get him on this Which is
2: like they get to pick and choose how they identify information as being false yep. and I guess anything that is inherently critical of the military or Moscow government is now identified as quote-unquote false information. Um, But again, like, I really hope that there's something that maybe international politics can do in order to ensure his safety or just help him get out of the situation because he's just advocating for the human rights of people in Russia, outside of Russia, being affected by Russia. Um, And people should not be in prison for, you know, speaking out against the government, and it's a privileged thing for me to say that because I live in the United States and it, other people don't have that right in other areas and other countries. But that's how my thoughts and feelings are. I wish him the best, I wish his family the best, and I hope things work out for them.
1: I, I don't me to cut the conversation short, but I know we have Kevin's interview with Professor Himmelfarb, so just a quick intro, Kevin, and then we're going to go get right to it.
3: Yeah, so this week at Hofstra is the Obama conference where they review Obama's presidency. Unfortunately, Obama will not be here, but you'll hear uh, all about it in the interview. Richard Himmelfarb is a professor here at Poli and he is one of the main curators of the event this week, so let's take a listen.
1: And after this, we're going to go right to the top of the hour, so we'll see you then.
3: Professor, when you hear maybe that students aren't interested in a conference like this, what would be your pitch on the importance of this event for students?
4: Well, um, you know, when I think about the Obama presidency, I think that it really was the first sort of presidency that many students on campus remember. Um, Obama was president from 2009 to 2017. And that really does coincide with the formative years of many students on campus. Uh, uh, Barack Obama's presidency had a great influence on the country. And what we do in these conferences is we bring um, people from the administration, noted journalists, um, noted scholars, to sort of hold forth and talk about, you know, the great issues that were raised by uh, uh, the presidency of Barack Obama and um, Obama's ultimate significance in American politics. And um, um, I think one of the important things to note about a conference like this is that the conference is not only open to students, but students really are at the forefront uh, of the conference. Um, Student participation is a very important component of the conference. One of the things that um, we have tried to do over the years is um, structure the conferences so that Student participation is maximized so that students are not um, at the back of the room, so that students are not excluded from anything. And as a matter of fact, whenever possible, we try to put the students at the front. We try to give students as many opportunities as possible to meet policymakers, to ask them questions, to ask questions of scholars, and to fully participate in our program.
3: What about for faculty and scholars that are coming in, what's their role at the conference?
4: Um, well, you're going to see scholars coming in and giving papers for the most part. Um, so a, a number of scholars, I'm one of them, has have written papers about different aspects of the Obama administration. And we're going to appear on panels where we basically summarize our papers pretty much in about 10 minutes. And then um, we're going to have a discussant on a panel who also will be a professor. Um, who will basically talk about the papers, and maybe a couple other policymakers uh, will talk about the paper, and then we're going to open up for questions from the public. So these will be um, full-fledged um, dialogue about, you know, different aspects of the Obama administration, be they health care policy in the Middle East, climate change, and the like.
3: You talked about writing papers for the event. I, To my knowledge, you wrote a paper on health care regarding the Obama administration. Can you give us a little sneak peek of what's in that paper and what we can expect to hear about it?
4: Well, um, the paper is about um, probably the most controversial thing that uh, Barack Obama ever said. And uh, in selling his uh, uh, health care reform plan to the public, Obama promised on numerous occasions that if you liked your health insurance, you could keep your health insurance, and that it would not be affected by health care reform. And lo and behold, um, after saying that practically 30 times over a period of three years, um, people started receiving cancellation notices from their health insurers. And it turned out that um, what Obama had said um, was a false promise. Okay, and that he basically had promised something that turned out not to be true. So my paper examines what was going on here. Did he misspeak? Was his promise sort of aspirational or just based on hope? Or did he outright lie?
3: Aside from health care, what are some other topics that you expect and that students or anyone that goes to this event can expect to be covered?
4: Well, for example, we're going to have uh, quite a few people who, are going, who have written papers about United States policy in Afghanistan, United States policy in Iraq, uh, the Obama administration's um, um, policies concerning the war on terror. Um, we have a couple people who are addressing uh, topics such as education and climate change. Um, We have about 40 papers, a bit more than 40 papers that are going to be given during the conference. And um, they run the gamut of topics, domestic and foreign, from the Obama administration. Some of them are going to concern press relations. Some of them are going to concern things like the role of the First Lady. Um, Some of them are going to concern Obama's speaking style. So again, a wide variety of topics are going to be addressed.
3: With those topics, and just with every presidency, there's so many criticisms. There's victories, there's pitfalls, everything that can come with the presidency, and Obama with eight years in office and now we're looking back in hindsight, what are some of the overarching questions and criticisms that can be answered or at least talked about a little bit more in depth at this conference? Uh, I think
4: one of the questions that I will be interested to, um, to hear people discuss will be this question of why was Obama unable to unite the country? So he comes in, and he promises, basically, he's going to unite the country. And in particular, he's going to help the country um, deal with the issue of race. And when he leaves office, the country is possibly even more divided than when he enters office. And most Americans believe that race relations have worsened. They haven't gotten better. And I'll be interested to hear... What people think about that was um was there no unity because Republicans refused to cooperate with him? To what degree did Obama contribute to this sort of great divide? Um, was he a racially divisive president? Could he have handled these issues differently? So. I'll be interested to hear what people have to say about that.
3: Once again, you're listening to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. I'm Kevin Bunk. I'm sitting down speaking with Hofstra poli-sci professor Richard Himmelfarb regarding the upcoming Obama presidency conference here at Hofstra University since Obama left office with President Trump and President Biden. There's been so much controversy, so much hostility between parties and just in the current political landscape. So why is it important or valuable for us to look back to something that happened before what's
4: currently going on in the Obama administration? Why should we look back to his eight years? Well, I I think it's an important thing to ask about concerning how did we get here? So um, one of the questions that I'm interested in is how did we get Trump um, was there something about the age of Obama, the Obama presidency, that led the public to go in a completely different direction and elect Donald Trump? Um, were there grievances? Were the grievances legitimate? Were um, um, Did Obama in some way contribute, okay, or unintentionally create the climate in which Donald Trump could actually become president in 2016? So... Again, I think that um, um, if you're thinking about the country right now and where we are and how angry people are at each other and how divided we are, um, something happened. Okay, probably between 2010 and 2020. Okay, that changed this. But I always say to people, don't think that it was just Donald Trump being elected that changed everything. There had to be conditions in place for Donald Trump to become president. And Barack Obama is part of that story. So
3: this event, it's not the first time that Hofstra's having this event. Looking back at former presidencies, can you just talk about the history of the event, how to get started, and what is it like every year coming back to this event
4: for you? Okay. Well, it's this is the 13th president. So um, from what I'm told, and I wasn't here at the time, there were a bunch of faculty who were kind of sitting around and having lunch one day, and somebody said, why don't we have um, – a, a conference that reviews different presidencies. Um, why don't we have a conference where we bring people in to talk about domestic policy and foreign policy and presidential style and the and conference will include historians and political scientists and economists and sociologists and journalists and people from the administration. And um, Somebody said, yeah, let's do this. And then, so in, I think it was 1982, they had the first of these conferences. And they began with the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, who I think is essentially um, the first, you know, great president of the modern presidential era. And then they started having conferences pretty much every other year until they caught up, okay? Um, The first one that I was at was the George H.W. Bush conference in 1997. That conference was, I think, probably the peak of Hofstra presidential conferences in the sense that virtually everybody from the administration who was important was there, including uh, the president, George H.W. Bush, and his wife, Barbara, um, who came here, and Barbara went to the daycare center and planted a tree, and George H.W. Bush dropped in on a panel that was discussing the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then he went over to the John Cranford Adams Playhouse, and they gave him an honorary degree. And then we had a banquet before which Mr. President and Mrs. Bush stood for an hour and a half and had their pictures taken with everybody from Hofstra. Um, and then we had a huge banquet, and virtually everybody who of importance was there. His chief of staff was there. His vice president, Dan Quayle, uh, came there. Um, Dick Cheney was there. And um, that was also a conference that was significant, and that was, that was the first conference where we really incorporated students. And we actually matched students with uh, people who came in, and um, so students got to be guides for the people from the administration who decided to attend. And um, some of the students struck up relationships and friendships with the president, and the person who uh, we put with um, President Bush ended up uh, uh, striking up a friendship with him. Before you know it, she was going down to Texas and then up to Cape Cod to help him edit his papers in the summer. So she actually got to know him and uh, very, very well. And that was true for a number of other people who came to the conference. So um, that was one where we had presidential participation. Of course, since then, we've had the Clinton Conference, and Bill Clinton did speak here. And then we had the George W. Bush Conference about mm, now eight years ago. And now we're at Obama. Oh,
3: unfortunately, not for lack of trying, Obama is not going to be here for the conference. And obviously his vice president is occupied. So who can we expect to see at this conference?
4: I think there are a number of people who are notable. But I think that the two who I would say are really, um, I I think, um, most interesting and most compelling are, first of all, Valerie Jarrett who is uh, basically the Obama's BFF, um, their best friend, um, their sort of you know probably key political advisor, the person who knows them, who's the closest to them personally um, as well as politically, um, somebody who really, before Barack Obama became president, acted as something of a, men- a political mentor. So she's somebody who's going to be speaking here on Friday. She's very much in the know about the obamas uh she, um, she probably has quite a bit to say about the obama's legacy um and uh why the obama presidency is consequential the other person is a guy named ben rhodes who is this des- has been described as barack obama's alter ego on foreign policy okay he was the guy who kind of uh channeled like um um he knew how to um to sort of channel Obama's voice and wrote many of the public, many of the foreign policy speeches of the Obama administration. Um, I think he was arguably the most single consequential person in um, uh, putting together or you know helping to sort of cultivate Obama's vision of foreign (laughs) policy. So those are just two people who will be here, but there are a number of other notables from the Obama administration that are going to be coming through.
3: Once again, you're listening to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. I'm Kevin Bunk. I'm sitting down speaking with Hofstra poli-sci professor Richard Himmelfarb regarding the upcoming Obama presidency conference here at Hofstra University when these people all get together and everyone's in the same room interacting with each other, what's that like? Why should students and people on campus that are able to go to the event go because those people are there and not just say, well, Obama's not going to be there, so I'm not going to be there.
4: Well, there, you know, administrations or presidential administrations are, are big enterprises and there are a lot of people who are very influential and consequential, and even if you can't uh, persuade the president to come or the first lady to come, uh, there are still people who were in the room um, who had very important roles in making policy um, in some cases they may be more candid um, they may be uh, may may have more to say and more enlightening things to say than the principals themselves who are frequently restrained um, they frequently are very careful in choosing their words and you know, sometimes it's the person who's, you know, one level down or two levels down who really has a, a understanding of what goes on and really has more to contribute in many ways to a discussion about the president's, to, to, uh, to, you know, a presidency such as Obama's than even maybe Obama himself. Do you often find
3: that, and you hinted at it before using these former presidencies to look at modern politics and how did we get here, the pathway to where we are now? Do you often find that a presidency like Obama's is a direct reflection of presidencies that we've seen since or before and that they're all very similar to each other?
4: Um, I don't know if that they're necessarily similar to, e- to each other. Um, you know, they're all in their own way very much... Distinct, I guess. I guess they're similar to each other in that, you know, generally we, you know, presidents enter office, you know, with uh, uh, high expectations that they themselves have created. We are a very, we've become a very president-centric nation where we look to the president to really be our problem solver in chief and to do things and to get things done and to move the country forward. And then when. Things don't move forward exactly um, as efficiently or effectively, or in the pr- in the way that the the presidential candidate the president promised when he was a candidate. We're a little bit we're disappointed in that, but at the same time, it's fair to say that presidencies are very different. They have very different organizational styles in many cases. Um, the person who holds the Oval Office is a distinct individual who has his own approach, who has his own way of doing things, and. I think most interestingly, when we elect a president, we typically decide to elect a president who's very different from the guy who came before him. Okay? So, for example, you know, you had George W. Bush, who was very plain-spoken, and then you had Barack Obama, who is a college professor, who is very erudite, who is um, um, very intellectual, and he follows Bush. Okay? And then who follows Obama? Donald Trump. Is there anybody who's less intellectual than Donald Trump? okay is there anybody who probably um does less background reading okay or has less sort of a sense of you know uh, the sort of nuances of public policy issues than donald trump okay and then you know donald trump's sort of caustic and uh people find him obnoxious and um annoying and who do we elect after him joe biden okay Trump, you remember Trump, how we, you know, Trump you heard from every day. He was tweeting 18 times a day. He was doing an interview. He was giving a statement as he was leaving the White House. And now we have Joe Biden, who you barely ever hear. Basically, Biden appears a couple times a week, and that's about it. And so Biden is sort of the opposite of Trump. So we tend to kind of go in, the, in an opposite direction of whoever is in office. And Biden, and I should say Obama's no exception to that.
3: All right, Professor. Anything else that you would like to add? I appreciate your time. Anything else? That's I just on your mind hope about the that conference? you
4: know the the conference is is open to the university community. Uh, I hope that people will you know uh, avail themselves of all of the interesting panels and speakers. Um, the conference begins on Wednesday morning. It goes until you know Friday afternoon. We have you know numerous uh, panels, speeches. Um, um, events that, concerns, that that are sort of geared towards um, our, our students in particular. And um, I just hope that um, Hofstra students you know, realize that this is a great opportunity to come and to learn about really the first president who you guys probably remember in some type of detail and to think about what his effect and what his impact is uh, has been on the country.
3: When can we expect to see you at this conference, or will you be there the entire time? I'll be time? there the
4: entire time. I'll be there from the morning, from Wednesday morning when it begins at 9 o'clock. I think President Poser is going to speak to kick off the conference, all the way until the thing wraps up at, I think, something like 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock on Friday. So I'll be there the whole time.
3: All right, Professor. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much.
4: Okay. Thank you. Proudly brought. Okay. And then, you know, Donald Trump's sort of caustic, and uh, people find him obnoxious and um, annoying. And who do we elect after him? Joe Biden, okay? Trump, you remember Trump, how we, you know, Trump you heard from every day. He was tweeting 18 times a day. He was doing an interview. He was giving a statement as he was leaving the White House. And now we have Joe Biden, who you barely ever hear. Basically, Biden appears a couple times a week, and that's about it. And so Biden is sort of the opposite of Trump. So we tend to kind of go in, the, in an opposite direction of whoever's in office. And Biden, and I should say, Obama's no exception to that.
3: All right, Professor. Anything else that you would like to add? I appreciate your time. Anything else? That's I just to hope about the that conference? you know
4: the the conference is is open to the university community. Uh, I hope that people will, you know, uh, avail themselves of all of the interesting panels and speakers. Um, the conference begins on Wednesday morning; it goes until, you know, Friday afternoon. We have, you know, numerous uh, panels, speeches, um, um, events that concerns that, that are sort of geared towards um, our, our students in particular. And um, I just hope that um, Hofstra students, you know, realize that there's a great opportunity to come and to learn about, really, the first president who you guys probably remember in some type of detail, and to think about what his effect and what his impact is uh, has been on the country.
3: When can we expect to see you at this conference, or will you be there the entire time? I'll be time? there the
4: entire time. I'll be there from the morning, from Wednesday morning when it begins at 9 o'clock. I think President Poser is going mm-hmm. to speak to kick off the conference all the way until the thing wraps up at, I think, something like 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock on Friday. So I'll be there the whole time.
3: All right, Professor. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much.
4: Okay. Thank you. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Phillip Cavallero Studio. W-W-R-H-U. R-H-U. Hempstead. you you've
0: discovered. you discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication.
5: W-W-R-H-U.
0: Hofstra's morning wake-up call, morning wake-up call, call. lively talk, Long Island life, National
1: national news, international issues, through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM
2: Radio Hofstra University.
0: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its Board of Trustees.
2: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
1: Welcome, everybody. If you're just joining us, this is the second hour of the morning wake-up call on 88.7 FM WRHU. Joined here by myself, Luke. We got Dallas. We got Kevin. We got Mikey. We got everybody here today. Got some updates for you on community colleges throughout the United States coming up in a little bit. And then our interview with Dr. Don Levy on exactly what New Yorkers really think of New York uh, coming up in a little bit through there. Otherwise, we will see you over when the time comes. And welcome back again. Again, for joining us, this is the Morning Wake-Up Call on WRHU. Uh, Again, special thanks there for Kevin and Professor Himmelfarm for joining us there the other day. I know Kevin got that done yesterday, so it was a good interview to get to. Uh, Again, that's going to be for our Obama presidency conference coming up tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. Jam-packed opportunities. I know I'm going to be volunteering from about 8.30 to 10.30 tomorrow, uh, so hopefully you all can make it. It'd be really great. I know we got Peter Baker from the New York Times coming. We have some other scholars there as well. I know. Oh, I have to go to a communication and leadership panel, I believe, that's going on uh, around 4.20 or so tomorrow. And anyone else going to do any of the uh, festivities going around? Well, I, don't,
3: I know Dallas and I will be there tomorrow or Thursday. Thursday. What's today, Tuesday? Thursday uh, in the afternoon with tu- Professor Brinton.
2: Mm-hmm. We have that one to go to because Professor Brinton is moderating it and we're going for a class. And then for my public opinion and political communications class tomorrow. I'll also be going to one of the sessions. My professor has not told us which one yet, but we will be going and learning more about Obama's tenure as the 44th president of the United States of America.
3: I think it's good that professors bring students and classes to this because with all due respect, a lot of the classes, and I think professors realize this, are not as valuable when you have a long semester. If you plan it out well, you can miss a day of your academic curriculum. For an event like this, and Professor Brinton said it for, for us, for journalism majors, there's a lot of, and just for comm school in general, there's a lot of people who ran public relations or public affairs mm-hmm. or um, different communication style roles within the office of the president, mm-hmm. and so it actually makes for relevant and interesting sessions if you pick sessions that relate to something you're interested in.
2: It also can be a very good networking opportunity based on what you want to do, like if you're a political science major or if you're interested in public policy or public advocacy or, like, if you're interested in communications, like, talking from our perspective— ms um, com students it's great to meet these people and like pick their brains and ask them questions about like what it's really like on probably the biggest stage you could be on for any aspects of those like working for the white house is a crazy gig to book if you could book it and it's like the fate of the country's communication not only just like a singular business or a company like you're communicating for the president which i would want to be on obama's uh, cabinet because i Big Barack Obama fan over here, personally.
1: And, and you don't really get a lot of opportunities to you know speak with a lot of these people that are in there, and especially administration officials I know are coming uh, through there as well. I know the uh, CEO for the Obama Foundation should be there. I, mm-hmm. um, I do blank on her name. But Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett should be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she'll be around in that uh, regard as well. So definitely administration officials, as you already mentioned, which is great. Uh, and, of course, has always hosted these presidential conferences. It's been around now. It's the 13th one, I 13th believe. 13th one. Yep. Yeah, so which we, I
2: think is incredibly valuable that we as a university have this, like, track record of doing some such large-scale events like this. Because it's, like, good to be aware of, even if it's in the past, like, they're no longer in their presidency term, it's good to, like, reflect on. The state of politics for
3: at least four years of our country's history.
1: I'm I'm just kind of scared that it's already been seven years.
3: Yeah, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, you know what's what's interesting is in the interview with Professor Himmelfarb, he said that they, you know, when they're looking at these presidencies, they use it to evaluate how did we get to Donald Trump and how did we get to Joe Biden. So it's not just it's it's a very you know deep dive into analysis of. The path that Obama took to get us to where we are today Mm -hmm. because it's a recent presidency. Because sometimes they started the conference talking about FDR, their first conference, which is not – the path is not as direct Mm. to where we are today. So this one's interesting because of how recent it is. Only two presidents ago, only seven years ago, which in the big picture of America is obviously a very – small amount of time but Luke, like you said I can't believe it's already 7 years. Yeah. So it's it's going to be interesting. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to getting there for what I can get to and seeing what's going on and and who's all there and how many people are there and the scope of the whole event. Mm-hmm. And then
1: then you got to start thinking on to the next one but here's the thing. Will we have one That's what I was going to say because the well th- we always are going to have one for the you know the presidents and all that but it's the issue of let's say that Donald Trump gets reelected. Then you technically have to wait like another 6-7 years. So it's either well, you do it.
3: Could you review? Well, you couldn't couldn't get anybody
1: to come. It's like a Grover Cleveland scenario, right? Yeah. Like why would you do it and then oh, part 2 is coming up in 7 years after it? Mm-hmm. Like I don't it wouldn't really make any sense. But
2: like Kevin, as you mentioned, like who would if we were to have one? We probably will because just have had the way that succeed. Who things would show succeed. up?
1: Who would show up? I think I mean, Sean Spicer.
3: I think that Trump would never show up at all, so you wouldn't be missing his presence here. Like Obama, there was a chance he showed up to this. Mm -hmm. They tried really hard to get him. He sent a video. I know the conference opens with a video address from Which him. Which is that's going cool.
1: to be insane. Which
3: is really also you know, a nice courtesy mm-hmm. by Obama to mm-hmm. give the school instead of just... You could blatantly just blowing ignore the them school. Off. And,
1: and he's been here before, right? Debates in 08, mm-hmm. 12. So. Mm-hmm.
3: He's been here. He sent the video a couple minutes long addressing the conference, and that'll that's how it'll open up. But I think for a Trump administration... I think if hypothetically he was to have two terms of president of presidency separate, obviously with Biden in between, mm-hmm. you'd almost have two co- totally different cabinets mm-hmm. because of the amount of people that are not going to be back for a second term. So it would be interesting if you did have one 10 years from now, if Trump had two presidencies, how would you navigate who you're bringing back? Because of the divide between his two terms. Now it's
1: not—it's not technically based on who the administration officials want to bring, right? It's what if Hofstra wants to possibly invite yeah. people. I mean, I—I I would think. I think COVID's gonna be a huge aspect of that conference. Yeah. So we probably bring people like Dr. Fauci, Dr. David Burks. January sixth. Yeah, oh especially January sixth. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if they get like a capital police chief for that. Like I that would, would. Really... I
2: want I want his tell all.
1: Yeah, that would that would be something. But...
2: but I also think like you also have to think about the amount of people who entered his cabinet and left. Yep. And, or who got removed or who got fired. There's a lot
1: of perspectives. Or who
2: got let go. Like that's a lot of people that you could reach out to. But it's also a lot of people who like have snippets of what it was like mm. like you can't get the whole story from one person because so many people entered and left at different periods of time either by like their own accord or just being straight up removed um who was the guy who did the investigation
1: oh Robin Mueller
2: yeah mm. I would want him to be there I would want to get his perspective on the story obviously he might not be able to because I would say he's but. not
1: he wasn't technically part of the administration. He was kind mm-hmm. of assigned as the special counsel. So I don't I don't know how much weight that really mm-hmm. holds in bringing him in.
2: But I do you know that this time around they're bringing like political pundits and like people who like talked about the president. Yeah, there's a lot of
3: journalists coming yeah. this week as well.
2: So I think Robert Mueller would just be like an interesting way to tell the story of Donald Trump's term, first term
1: as president. Oh, James Comey. Yeah.
3: J- uh, yeah. But it's just like, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, mayor. Why am I forgetting his name? Mayor of New York.
1: Oh, uh, you mean Bill De Blasio? Yeah. No, Giuliani. No. Oh, oh Giuliani? wow.
3: Get Giuliani.
1: In? Possibly. Yeah. Well, I, I always say that. What's he doing? Now? And I, I always mention this because Donald Trump's sister, Marianne Trump Barry, went to Hofstra. So yeah, in you know it's and phil- the judge that he hates, Ron <laughs> Mershon. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But um. I think it's an interesting thought experiment to have to think about the logistics of a Donald Trump presidential conference here at Afstra to review his first term because again we don't know if it's going to be his only term. We also don't know who would logistically want to be here to speak about their time. I I would I'd be
1: I think you'd be surprised probably hundred people would
2: probably mm-hmm. show up. I also Kevin I know you said you don't think you said he, you don't think he would.
3: He wouldn't come.
1: No way.
2: I have Trump. I have. An idea that he would, for the spectics, for the spectacle, for the optics of it, just to be like. It's,
1: well, especially think about it this way: if he only does one term, come, that's like his comeback. Mm-hmm. He's back not in to be New positive. York. Like-
3: no, well, because he's not going to come here and hear about how great his term was. He's going to no. hear both good things and bad things because mm-hmm. that's with every president. But for the most part, he's going to hear about COVID, January sixth, yep. and his path to losing reelection. Yep.
2: But I also think he'll find like I think, think what you will about Donald Trump. I have my own thoughts and opinions about Donald Trump. I think he has an uncanny ability. To find a way to make it so he comes out on top.
1: Yes, he he has a uh he, he, whatever. There's no surprises with Donald mm-hmm. Trump. He could do anything. His which showmanship,
2: is
3: really scary.
2: his
1: he knows how to be the center
3: of attention. Yeah. And, and be an entertainer. Mm-hmm. Mm. His
2: storytelling abilities are kind of unmatched from a president that in my time of being alive, only 20 years, I'm not that
1: old. Yeah. but um, in in reality and unreal or or I guess what what do they say? Delusion? No, not I wouldn't say that. What um. Alternative facts, right? Ah, that was the mm-hmm. point of the administration. Yes, yeah. the alternative facts of it all.
2: I think he would show up he could show up just to put on a show and then have that as a part of his like little stamp to be like they tried to they tried to drag my name. Not even drag his name, just tell the honest truth about what happened. And he was like, And I still found a way to come out on top. In that scenario.
3: Take over Hofstra University.
2: I would be so terrified. Hey, it's Trump
1: University part two. We don't, we don't need that. <laughs> so I think I we'll about pass that. on that. Hard
2: pass. Also, like, sorry, we're getting so deep into this, but do you think they'll do a review of, like, his pre-presidency? Like... His oh, time, absolutely! Like, yeah. His time on The Apprentice, like all that stuff.
1: I wouldn't say that. I would say run up to election. You think of the the golden escalator ride, you which think is of the so
2: insane. The golden escalator is like such so but insane. That,
1: but it's like it's imprinted in everybody's mind. Like you know where. And I wouldn't say it's like a you know where you were moment, but people always just recognize that. Mm-hmm. I just
3: think of the Simpsons one.
1: Yeah, the Simpsons ones definitely. I didn't think of the real one. But no, because I know for the Obama one, they're also assessing like the election and just the run up mm-hmm. to everything. I don't think it's going to be like, oh, they got to get uh, Mark Burnett to talk about The Apprentice. Probably not. Mm-hmm. But I I would think it's more of that run up. You obviously debates. So may, maybe even get like, I don't know, let's say a Carly Fiorino or a Marco Rubio to show mm-hmm. up and talk about, you know, debating Donald Trump or something like do that.
2: We get, do we get Chris Christie? So Chris Christie talk about how Donald Trump was rude to his wife.
1: <laughs> Wait,
2: what? Didn't Donald Trump say something rude about Chris Christie's wife? Yeah,
1: I would be surprised. Let's see. Uh, Chris
2: Christie is from is New Jersey, correct? Yes. He said something about his wife just being
3: ugly, but like Chris Christie now, sometimes he's on sports shows, yeah. doing stuff. He's so random where he pops up. <laughs> what is his avenue? What is his theme? just he- bored now. <laughs> he has nothing else to That's do. That's one of those things where the big networks, whether it's politics, sports, anything, they just he's the guy they call now. He's mm-hmm. the evergreen. Which he's, is oh, we can't get anybody on. Let's call <laughs> Chris Christie.
2: Which is crazy but um i
1: i actually couldn't find it
2: uh, so i hope i, I hope I i'm know. still correct he said something about somebody's wife being ugly that's it's so like ingrained in my brain but
1: i i know if that conference does happen it would be very interesting to see who shows up i think like you said it's, just, it's also very it would know. be
2: very interesting to see the response from Hofstra students like what they would do i would go for like academic purposes to like learn but i also like would just be in my head like Am I going to see Donald Trump in the flesh?
1: We forgot impeachments. That's, yes, yeah. that's impeachment. Gonna be another one. It's going
2: to be a crazy panel. To it's have. a very
1: unique presidency mm-hmm. to say the least. So
2: you, you'll have the impeachments. You'll have like January six. You'll have COVID, mm. you'll
1: foreign, have relations, with foreign uh, relations with North Korea. Think gonna,
2: about
3: I that mean, whole month of January. Well, he met with everyone. Trump. He did a lot on the the front of...
1: Which I will say, hey, gra- I guess great for foreign relations to try and build stuff up, but that's a lot of people. Ex- like.
3: Except for, you know, I don't know the details of his foreign relations work, but the optics of it, he was like second to none almost in, mm-hmm. his,
1: in his run as president. But you think about it, the business, I mean, the business dealings he kind of already had with international mm-hmm. companies and places yeah. like, so I think what he meant with Erdogan, right, from Turkey, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a whole thing with yeah. that, with the hotel company? I don't remember exactly what. All what we know that. is if,
2: Professor Himmelfarb and Dr. Bose, the two people who are coordinating the conference, need ideas.
1: We just planned out for next one.
2: We've just planned it at least the first two days. There you go. Yeah, no, um, no
1: no no I guess I guess last two years really. I mean, think about that cuz no, like
2: the first two days of the conference.
1: I was going to say, but I guess over the last two years of the yeah. presidency then, but
2: but I don't know. If and if he doesn't if his re-election is unsuccessful, that's another thing that they'll have to talk about at the conference. You can do that's a month
3: long conference about Trump's 4 years. Before. Yes. Oh gosh. About that Trump's was... January, his, <laughs> his final January.
2: His final January. That was January something else. Office. I
1: remember they tried to invoke that it was on CBS and I saw Margaret Brennan who didn't does Face tried, the Nation. Didn't he try to invoke martial law at least once i i don't know about that one but i do know that they she came on the the news feed and she was like i don't take this lightly and we don't take this reporting very lightly but there have been discussions to invoke the 25th amendment which of course is the whole thing where for due to either incapacity of a president Mm -hmm. or and they have to get approval from like a a certain amount of cabinet members and some of them were approval of it some of them weren't uh, so they were, there was, a, oh, gosh, that was, it was, that was bonkers. It was I remember wild. that, and I was like, oh, my goodness. But,
2: yeah, just, like, the tail end of his time as president. Like, mm. January was an absolute whirlwind of a time. That he, horrible
3: transfer of power. Yes. That yep. occurred. Quite literally insane. <laughs> that another, another
1: one. There you go.
2: Like, I don't know. I would want a whole panel about his body language. I just want to analyze the body language of Donald J Trump. The tweets, the tweets, twi- social media that and the United States topic. presidency. Mm-hmm. I just like his body language, his his ability to stir up a crowd is insane. Yeah. You never I've never seen anything like that It's it very before. scary, but he g- gets scary, the job done. It's scary, but it's I don't know if this is the right word. It's fascinating.
3: Yes. Was he was he also the first president and the only president to not attend the inauguration of his successor?
1: No, I'm not sure. I forget about the whole Truman Eisenhower spat okay. that, that happened.
3: He definitely didn't go. We know that. Trump. Mm-hmm. We no, know that he, he wasn't go. at
1: Biden's, but let me that. I don't know if they. I think it was like one of them didn't ride in the same car or something. I don't remember how that one worked. Which, it was the whole deal.
2: I don't know. I also think the spectacle of being a U.S. president, like the the unwritten rules, I guess, are also kind of crazy.
3: No, it's the fourth time that someone did not attend oh. hmm. inauguration. inauguration. Hmm. Uh, John Adams.
1: For Thomas Jefferson,
3: for Thomas Jefferson, yeah. uh, Andrew Johnson, and I'm assuming.
1: Okay, well, Andrew Johnson, he he got impeached. He was he was done. Yeah. <laughs>
3: um, and John Quincy Adams. Uh, oh, why? Also did not.
2: Hmm. The more you know. But listen, Professor Herman Farb and Dr. Bose, hit us up if you. Yeah, we're ready to plan the
1: next conference. That's right. Well, you know, until that time, we're going to keep planning for the morning show that we got. So I know, Kevin, you got your uh, article here, at least when it comes to community college, and I don't know if you want to go and throw that up, but go ahead.
3: Yeah, something that always fascinates me, and the AP wrote about it this week, they talked about the rise in college students dropping out, or it's just high school students who are opting out of going to college and deciding to go to trade school, so trade school is becoming increasingly more popular each year. And I want to know why isn't it pushed more in public schooling? Many trade schools are now seeing wait lists for the first time. It's a result of jobs lost in the pandemic and the increased value for essential workers. Trades overall aren't a part of the agenda in youth education, and majority of essential workers practice a trade, which is a population of people who will never lose work. So how many kids do we know and that all of us do, because I'm assuming you guys have shared experiences that didn't go to college and could have benefited from a trade education. It also would be incredibly intelligent from the perspective of the government because it helps the economy economy to keep the trade positions filled, as those essential workers would never go out of business. So I don't understand why this isn't a public school education and or something that public schools encourage, and also that it. Just as great to see that trade schools are getting more uh, popularity.
1: I, th- I think it's just an issue of with higher education that there's a lot of taboo sometimes with trade schools because like oh you have to get a four-year degree because then you're not going to be successful or you're not going to move up the chain. It's like it's like the I guess the military sometimes too with like um, you know. Uh, military academies and all that stuff. It's an alternative pathway, but one that's not really advertised as much, if anything. Uh, but granted, it's something that you know could be popular and, of course, lends itself to be popular if need be because you have skyrocketing enrollment prices and all that for students to go to college. And the affordability is always tricky to get through with that. But I know through the AP article here, at least for percentage-wise, there's uh, mechanic and repair trade programs were in- increased by 11.5% over a year span. Uh, construction trades were 19%, and culinary programs were actually 12%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for uh, at least standard two-year colleges, 7.8% decline in enrollment over that spring, that spring year period, and 3.4% at public four-year institutions. So there's definitely an alternative for that. And I think it's just different ways to go to college now, because like Kevin, you mentioned the pandemic, of course, is that people tried to find alternate routes to go through there. I know you have stuff like micro-credentials people can do now to get like a smaller bits of degrees, or they have um, what they call MOOCs, which are massively open online courses. So if you want to take a course with a couple hundred people in it online, you get the same experience through there, you can kind of do that too. So it's really just alternate pathways then for college, if anything else.
2: Yeah, I'm um, speaking from the perspective of somebody who lives with an educator, my mom. Shout out my mom. She's listening to me right now with my grandma and my dad. Miss um, Jackson. Miss Jackson. Shout out Miss Jackson. My mom has, my entire life, has been a big advocate for students to at least know about alternative options besides what we describe as quote-unquote traditional four-year college. Um, she and I have both agreed that the high school or the school district that I went to did it under service to a lot of students by providing them options beyond talking about college post high school like ever since I could remember in like middle school counselors would be just like talking about when you apply to college when you apply to college when you apply to four-year schools when you start looking at four-year schools they didn't talk about community college as an option they didn't talk about trade schools as an option and I do like think a lot of people I went to high school with would have genuinely benefited from from knowing that trade school was a genuine option to them or at least invite, inviting trade schools like to the mini college fairs we had to learn about like the different unions that you could become a part of like the different trades you could be on because it is a highly beneficial career and my mom has been a big advocate for like students as early she like works in a middle school right now but she used to work in an elementary school i know we did a project that i helped her with just talking about like options for you like once you're out of middle school that you can start considering once you enter high school and she kept pushing me to, like, include different trades and different professions and different careers, like cosmetology school, becoming an electrician, learning about HVAC unit in installations. But I mean, she was like, not every kid can, A, feasibly go to college from an affordability standpoint, and not every kid is built to go to college. And mm. that's fine and should be more acceptable in society. And I do completely agree with her. Like, stop making kids feel as though they need to go to college to be successful because it's not true.
3: I think the four of us all enjoy college. I certainly do, but it's certainly not for everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's another level of learning and more intense learning. You have a lot more work, and it's just not a, the four year commitment of of learning and maybe beyond four for many people. It's like Dallas said, it's not affordable, and it's just not something that people want to do. So, introducing trades in high school in middle school could be so beneficial because a lot of people just want to leave work and start making money Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people my whole family be above me everyone older than my sister my cousins they're all in trades and they all did really well Mm -hmm. so where is that agenda being pushed for students to have the option of trade school because it's not at all it's all like the l said college from the time you're in sixth grade to the time you're actually in college or to the time you have no idea what you want to do because you don't want to go to college and you don't know the other options and then military's the next mm-hmm. thing that's pushed mm-hmm. and it's not really even pushed enough and you just have no idea what you're going to do with
2: and that. i think from my experience from the high school that i went to a lot of kids did, like i knew what i wanted to do in terms of career and a major very early in life a lot of kids i knew didn't have an, a concept up until, like, the wire of senior year. yeah, And then they were just like, oh, I'm just going to be a business major. And I was just like, do you know what a business major entails? Do you know all the possible... Like, you can do e- economics, you can do finances, you can do accounting, you could do marketing. Like, that's a lot of different options. And people didn't have an idea of what specific avenue of business they want to be in. And I was just like, maybe you would have benefited from taking some time to learn a trade and then just, like, evaluate what you actually enjoy doing and if you actually want to go to college. Because it's also, like... The culture that I went to in a school district was everybody's parents were ultra-successful. I'm talking, like, doctors, lawyers, things of that, like, CEOs of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, like, that avenue. And a majority of families, I'm willing to bet, like, 92% of parents in the high school district that I went to went to four-year colleges. I'm talking, like, Duke, Yale, Harvard, like, the big-name schools. And nobody knew what like community college was like nobody talked about community college and no one talked about trade schools so everybody was just like oh these people's parents went to four-year colleges like my mom went to like graduated from college my dad didn't and he's always just been like that's my prerogative that's the life i lived and he's still a very successful person in my opinion Mm. and he both of them were just like you don't have to go to college if you don't want to Like, if you don't want to go to college, that's fine. You just need to have a plan. And some people are just like, I don't have a plan, so I'm going to go commit to going to four years of college, which is an expensive thing to do without having a plan. Like, you can be undecided and try things out, but that's a lot of money to spend if you're not sure if you want to be there.
3: I think that when you look at the, the pandemic and what you can really take away from it, not to say that the pandemic is something that's going to happen again in our lifetimes, because historically it doesn't. It's a once in a lifetime thing. But instances like that are just drastic examples of what job never goes out during recession, during depression, during pandemic, epidemic. Which one it stays and mm-hmm. it's essential jobs. It's trades. They don't stop, and you can always market yourself if you can do a trade. I can't say 20 years from now I'm broadcasting somewhere, I'm producing somewhere. I can't market myself to my neighbor and say, hey, I can produce a radio show for you. Mm. That is not going to help at all. Mm -hmm. But if I can paint your house, if I can do carpentry, if I can do electric, if I can do plumbing, if I can do any of those things, landscaping, cosmetology, like you said, that's a service that everyone needs and uses so it never actually goes out of style. It's never something – it's not something that AI is going to take over. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm confident in that. Mm-hmm. And they'll try. It'll be attempted. But it won't work out ultimately because trades are necessary human duties. And it's it's just – it's crucial for people to go into them. I yeah. really don't enjoy the, the way that public schooling dodges trades, community college, and overall life skills and valuable lessons – Because kids get here where we are and have no idea what they're doing. That's not to say we all know what we're doing either, Mm. but there's just – how many friends do we have here that just kind of feel lost Mm -hmm. and could benefit from one of those alternate life paths aren't college
1: and then the issue is that you have students that will come into college and they drop out you know Mm because then they're like you know they don't know what purpose they have at least in what they're trying to work with because it was so plugged on them from an early age when they're going to high school you're going to college Mm -hmm. you're going to college you're going to college but not everybody is fit for college if anything because they have their own career paths and what they want to do that might not necessarily need your four or two-year institutions Mm -hmm. to help you out but at least I, I know for Hofstra, at least for our end, I know we have, like, our Nassau Community College and, like, Hofstra Partnerships, so you can do, like, a 2 plus 2 kind of thing to save anything through there. But a lot of community colleges also offer, like Kevin, you mentioned, a lot of those cosmetology certifications or other associate's degrees. You can just get that way to make yourself off a living if need be.
2: Mm-hmm. I also just, like, Kevin, you kind of touched upon on this. I think, like, as a society, we have a warped perspective perspective of what trade school is or what trades really are. Like, I know, like, the few times they would mention it, they would talk about, like, oh, like, if college doesn't work out for you. Like, in a way where it views it as less than college or as it's below. It's not. It's still a very valuable way to spend your time once you graduate from high school. And Like, we've been mentioning, it's essential services that we as a country need to function in its entirety. So I think just, like, not framing the conversation as though it's, like, something you do if you don't can't get into college it's something you do if you just don't want to go to college and that's perfectly fine and acceptable like college is a difficult thing to put yourself through and i'm saying that as somebody who's only like two years in like it's a struggle but i know it's something that i want genuinely to get through in order to better my career if you know that you don't want to go through four years of your time at an institution like this You should feel, like, perfectly fine making the decision to try a trade or do community college or do an associate's degree or just do something else. And I feel like we've gotten so um, sensitized, might not be the right word I want, sensitized to thinking that college is, like, the pinnacle of, like, what you're supposed to do out of high school. But it's just not true. And it's unfair for people who, like, just don't want to go to college. to feel like they have to go to college.
1: I, I guess what what would you all say is the I guess the best trade if anything I know we have stuff like welding you mentioned HVAC units before electrical work what what would you say is a is a better one to use you think if, they, if there's one that's more more valuable than others if anything I don't that mean, you see use more frequently
2: I don't want to say there's one more valuable than others but I want to say like if I knew how to do like carpentry I would be better off you know.
3: If I, did I could ca- like carpentry and plumbing, yeah, because like- I could think of a flaw with every other one. My dad's a painter. Not every house needs to be painted. There's brick houses, vinyl siding, that stuff all, and like electric. There's solar energy now. Mm-hmm. You don't really need the. I mean, it's still, the house needs to still, still be routed correctly, but plumbing. There's no alternative, mm-hmm. and carpentry, uh, woodworking is just mm-hmm. you have to, every house has it. Every building has it in some way shape or form whether Mm -hmm. you see it or not
2: like if i knew how to do if i knew the aspects of plumbing that i need to know how to take care of my own home i would be better off because i wouldn't need to hire somebody else to do it if i could learn how to do like the basics of electrical i'd be better off because i would do it myself those are skills that i feel like would be good to know but like i all of them are like really good avenues of work to get into if i learn, if i could be like a cosmetologist that'd be fine But cosmetology
3: as well, though, because it's a service that so many people desire and that uh, in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. is is it can be upcharged. So that's a great trade to go into because that's something that's never going Mm -hmm. to, even though you don't need it. Nobody needs cosmetic work. Everyone wants it. Yeah. In some capacity.
2: My dad just texted me and he said, everybody needs an electrician and a plumber and an auto mechanic. So those.
3: So I, I wasn't even thinking about auto. I was gonna say, according yeah.
2: to Mr. Jackson, those are the top three Thank trades. Thanks, Mr.
1: Jackson. Thanks, Dad. Much my, my mom did wallpaper back in the day. She uh-huh. actually installed a lot of wallpaper. Unfortunately,
3: wallpaper going out of style. Yeah, you know We
1: not, Used to have
2: wallpaper in my house in our bathroom, which was yeah, just same, like
3: same my house too.
2: It was like black with pink flowers, and it just made the bathroom That's why you so dark. So yes, I'm traumatized from the wallpaper in my bathroom.
1: Well, I know I know we had talked a lot, a lot of trades and all that. We actually have our interviewee on the line right now, so we're going to get to that for now. So granted, I know we already mentioned at the top of the hour uh, a lot of focus, at least on New York. At least I know for our show we talk about more on the local side of things. So what do New Yorkers think of New York? What is the aspects in there uh, that we have to work on through that? And, of course, that's been done through the State of the State of New York survey conducted by Siena College over there. And here to talk about that is Dr. Don Levy, who's the director for the Siena College Research Institute here to speak with us today. Dr. Levy, thanks for joining us today.
5: A pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So just your general main takeaways that you had uh, through the State of the State survey was mainly that 30% of New Yorkers would rather live somewhere else. Uh, I know we usually talk about the weather and all that and how sometimes that might play a factor every now and again, but what were some of the respondents' reasoning for possibly moving out of the Empire State itself?
5: We asked them about uh, a series of different aspects of life, and and those things that... Um, scored the lowest that people were most upset with, um, were uh, the issue of crime, which has been in the news a great deal. About half of New Yorkers say that, um, uh, they give the state only a an only fair or poor rating for a place where they feel safe from crime, uh, our political system, whether or not the political system works for people like they, um, that's one that, um, o- almost 60% gave the state a fair or poor grade as a place to retire. Um, Many New Yorkers feel that um, it just isn't the place that they can afford to retire. 60% gave the state only fair or poor grade. But the one that really jumps off the page is the question of affordability. Clearly, that was an issue that the governor stressed in her state of the state. uh, And uh, with good reason. 67% of state residents uh, rate the state as only fair or poor on the issue of affordability. And in fact, among some groups, that number goes up considerably higher. When you look at New York City suburbs, um, whether that be Westchester or Long Island, nearly 80% of residents of those areas give the state a grade of only fear or poor on affordability. So, you know, in a nutshell, uh, one thing that we found from the survey is it's a great place to live, New York is, if you can afford to live here.
1: I'm just going to go off of that super quick on the affordability aspect you mentioned there. What what was the, I guess, main overall factor with that affordability, if they had anything to grade? I know for your survey itself, it's more like fair, poor, good uh, averages through there, but is there anything in particular they would stress on the affordability aspect?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is not the only survey that we do. We we know, um, as a matter of fact, and you probably see these surveys, the index of consumer sentiment, a couple of things that we track there are the effect that uh, gasoline and food are having on New Yorkers. And there we see, for example, food prices, 80% of New Yorkers are telling us that the, the cost of groceries is having either a very serious or somewhat serious impact on the family budget. That's the highest number that we have ever seen. We've been doing that question now, for over 15 years. And gasoline, although gas prices um, have uh, continued to be under $4, we still see about 65% of New Yorkers saying that gas prices um, are affecting them. So it's just the staples of everyday life that hit people uh, first. That's before you start to consider whether it be housing costs um, or uh, whether or not their paycheck is keeping up with inflation. Um, But food, gasoline, and just simply getting through uh, each and every week, each and every month uh, is taxing on New Yorkers. So consequently, by a two to one margin, they give the state either fair, poor, uh, as opposed to excellent or good grades on its affordability.
3: Granted, not everything is doom and gloom in the Empire State. People highlighted the abilities of quality health care, education, and leisure activities. What would you say, uh, what would respondents say is the greatest aspect?
5: Well, there's a, a love that people have uh, for New York. Uh, a couple of things that jumped out uh, at me, you mentioned leisure activities, nearly 80% give the state excellent or good grades there. But one thing that I think that we take for granted a little bit uh, we asked a question about the presence of people that you enjoy socializing with. Are your people here? Is sort of the question. And there are 77% of New Yorkers gave the state an excellent or good grade just for the people that you associate with. Um, you know, and that says something about New Yorkers feeling about New Yorkers. New Yorkers feeling about living in a culture, living in a milieu that uh, they feel comfortable. They feel like these are people that they want to be around. Um, Another thing is, as a place where people can be successful, despite affordability issues, uh, there still is an overriding sentiment, 70% gave the state either an excellent or good grade, that New York is the type of place where you can be successful. So there remains a perception that there is significant opportunity here in New York. You know, and we asked another question, how about New York as a place where you can live a fulfilling life? Is this the type of place where you, can, where you can have all aspects of your life. You can have people that you know you want to associate with. Um, you can be successful. You can have leisure activities. Um, you can have a spiritual life. Is it a place where you can have a fulfilling life? 69% more than two to one. Give the state excellent or good grades for that. So there is a great deal uh, to like about New York. And New Yorkers um, clearly express that. Um, still, it's buffeted by the issues of affordability, safety, uh, a frustration with our political system, and a concern that perhaps when I reach retirement age, and we saw an uptick in the percent of New Yorkers who say that they're thinking of leaving, they wish they would leave, amongst those New Yorkers who are approaching retirement age, those 50 to 64 years of age.
1: And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Don Levy of Siena College on the State of the State of New York survey that was conducted through their research institute. Uh, I'll say that you mentioned more on that change in uh, you know, percentages over time, at least, uh, when it comes to those retirement ages, as you mentioned. And I know this isn't the first State of the State s- survey that has conducted itself. So how have those percentages, whether it's through that or just any of the other uh, key marks that you mentioned, how have those necessarily changed over time from your other surveys you've done?
5: You know, uh, we've seen uh, things move in both directions at the same time. So what I mean by that is some of the numbers that we've seen in terms of pride in New York, appreciation for things like our, our healthcare system, our educational system, those numbers are up from where we have tracked them five years ago and 10 years ago. However, what's not up is the question of affordability. Uh, And the concern that New Yorkers have over affordability is the highest that we have seen since the great recession of 2008, driven uh, to a large extent, as I mentioned, by things like groceries, gasoline, uh, insurances, housing, um, all those issues that that add together. So the concern over that is the highest that we have ever seen. So consequently this figure of 30% saying they wish someplace else, and nearly as many, 27% of all New Yorkers, a disturbingly high 32% of upstaters, say that in five years they expect to be gone from New York. And when we said, how about retiring, will you retire in New York or will you retire someplace else? Again, 31% of all New Yorkers, uh, a little bit more, 39% of New Yorkers who are 18 to 34, predict that they will retire someplace other than New York.
2: So you kind of touched upon it especially with upstate and uh, more rural areas of New York. Some people traditionally like to equate New York instantly with like the city and the liveest lifestyle that comes with it but how kind of could you dive a little more into how that lifestyle is perceived from those who live upstate or in more rural areas?
5: Well We asked some questions about some of the great attractions of of New York State uh, and whether people have frequented those as adults. And there, I think there's some things that we take pride in as New Yorkers. Um, 85% of New York adults say that they have visited New York City, the sites of Broadway, Empire State, Times Square, et cetera. Uh, nearly, Nearly all New York City and suburban residents have been there. Uh, but 69% of upstaters have visited New York city. Similarly, Statue of Liberty, um, most New York city residents, I say most 78%. There's still, uh, uh, nearly a quarter of New York city residents who have not ventured out to visit the Statue of Liberty. Uh, that number of course drops amongst upstaters down to 54%. So there is a sense that, um, uh, some upstate residents. Um, who, you know, live relatively far from the city, have not as yet uh, taken advantage of the sites of New York City. Conversely, some of the treasures of upstate, the Adirondacks, the Finger Lakes, the Thousand Islands, um, you are more likely to have visited the, those attractions uh, of New York State if you live upstate than if you live in New York City. In fact, only a third of New York City residents have ever been to the Thousand Islands, Only just more than that, 37% of New York City residents have visited the Finger Lakes. Uh, The Adirondacks score a little bit higher, but still uh, fewer than 50% of New York City residents have ever ventured up to the the Adirondacks. So there's a great deal uh, of beauty in New York State yet to explore. uh, And uh, certainly geography makes a difference. The other thing that makes a difference is income. Um, People with greater levels of income... Uh, household incomes of at least $100,000 a year or more are more likely to have visited each and every one of these attractions uh, than uh, our New Yorkers who make under $50,000 a year. So uh, money makes a difference, um, opens up a sort of a a, a what can you do about it question. Um, We would like all New Yorkers to benefit from the beauty that is New York, the attractions, the cultural heritage of New York. So perhaps a little bit more funding made available to at least allow uh, school kids to visit the sites of New York would be one of the findings that I think jumps off the page of this survey.
3: Based on the survey results, what are some predictions you can make for the future?
5: I think that one of the the, the takeaways is in terms of um, a message to our elected officials. Uh, There is concern in the state of New York uh, about a brain drain, about a population exodus. Uh, We continue to be concerned in New York with each uh, census that affects the number of congressional representatives that we have. Um, So there's a concern. If indeed these numbers turn out to be prescient, and if indeed um, a third almost of New Yorkers plan on leaving the state, uh, that would have a dramatic effect on our level of representation in Congress. It would have a dramatic effect on the economic vitality of the state. So what are we going to do about it? I think that that's what we have to, to stay on top of in our research is to try to um, build a relationship between the steps that our elected officials are taking, uh, the manner in which they are seeking to make New York State uh, more affordable, the, the manner in which they are seeking to generate sufficient economic opportunity that more people uh, make the income that it will allow them to stay in New York and enjoy the high quality of health care, the high quality of education to keep people Um, in New York, contributing to the Empire State. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge for our political leadership, and it's a decision for each and every New Yorker. How do I weigh, how do I balance what I like about New York, the people, the education, healthcare, the attractions, with the challenge of affordability? Um, We just went through tax season, obviously. Uh, We know that there are states that do not have a state income tax, So when each and every New Yorker pays their New York state income tax bill, uh, I'm sure that there's a consideration in a lot of people's minds is, is it worth it? Is it worth paying these taxes when I could move to a state that perhaps doesn't offer the same level of service, uh, but does not have a state income tax? Those are political questions, and those are personal questions. We'll continue to track how New Yorkers feel about each and every one of those as time moves forward.
1: Many many ups and downs with the state, but I can tell you one thing. We do have some good sports teams, if that's any th- indication for there. Uh, but granted, uh, before we let you go, Dr. Levy, is there anything you'd like to add or input on? And then how can our listeners contact you if need be?
5: Sure. Um, they can head over to our website, uh, sienna.edu backslash scri. Uh, and the data from this and all our other surveys is uh, available there. So we welcome people jumping to our website. Uh, And we will continue to track the politics and social and cultural affairs and even the sports of New York as we move forward.
1: Of course. Well, we will enjoy that and anything else that you have uh, coming through with us, Dr. Levy. So, again, that was Dr. Don Levy there from the Siena College Research Institute for the State of the State of New York Survey. Thanks again for joining us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: And otherwise, we are going to take a quick song break, and then we are going to get to Kevin's spot on Major League Baseball coming up in a little bit. So we'll see you then.
0: Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, only on 88.7 FM, WRHU.
3: Love starting my morning as a native New Yorker with some New York, New York. DJ Luke, always bringing us the heat. Back live from the Richard Phillip Cavalero Studio, I'm Kevin Bunk. With me, Dallas Jackson, Luke Farrell, Mikey Dent. We got just over 10 minutes left here, right around 10 minutes. So let's finish out strong. Been a good show so far. Major League Baseball we turn to. Not an actual play story, but now Major League Baseball has shorter games with the pitch clock, about 40 minutes shorter in average length of game from last season. So stadiums are beginning to extend beer sales past the seventh inning. So they would go to the ninth inning, which would be a, a full game of alcoholic sales. And previously to this, they could only be sold up until the seventh inning stretch. That was for safety reasons, but now those safety concerns seem irrelevant as teams are allowed to extend those alcohol sales. Theoretically, this gives fans a smaller window to sober up from the time they're at the game to the time they're commuting home. Drunk driving is obviously the biggest concern, but along with that, player safety is a concern as fans oftentimes become rowdy in the closing stages of games which now would allow them to be rowdy with alcohol in the closing stages of games. And the kicker to the entire thing, at least for me, is that Major League Baseball has not seen a decrease in profit on their concessions through the first two weeks of the season with shorter games. So it seems to reflect bad morals from the league as the safety of fans and players and all at the stadium are being hurt by this. I was curious your guys' thoughts on the matter.
1: Well, I know. I I forget, Dallas, if you're with me on this. So we had an interview with Dr. Uh, Dr. Maxey from Drexel yes. University, I remember, for concessions having those increased mm-hmm. prices. We, we never got to ask him about the pitch clock. I guess we didn't get around to that. But... I I actually like the whole pitch clock idea, right? It makes games go faster. You're not sitting there for goodness knows three, four hours sometimes just waiting there with like a hot dog and that's it. Uh, But it's good to get people, you know, out and and going about and it just makes games a lot more fun. It's easier for people to go to these games. But I think the concessions sometimes, like there's all those fancy Sundays and everything. I'm like, do you really need the bucket like hat with the, what is it? The the helmet ice cream Mm -hmm. Sunday style thing. I don't really know about that. Beer sales though, I think that is a, a good plus, at least if you are looking to go and Consume alcohol if you do want to do that. Those baseball games. Uh, so, granted, that's something for you, if anything. Uh, but I'm not really sure how fans are really making for it. But I know Kevin and Dallas are really more the two sports uh, people. So da- I'm curious, Dallas, if what, Listen, what do you speaking think? Speaking from
2: coming from the rowdy city that is Boston, Massachusetts, I do foresee that this could be a safety issue, especially having a smaller window of time to allow people to reach a level of sobriety to leave the stadium um obviously if you've been drinking you should not drive like that's point blank period flat out however the fact that even just being on public transportation like being able to drink into the later extent of the games like the fact that they still haven't stopped um they've extended it so people can drink for longer is a little bit of concern because just commuting back to wherever you're coming from on public transportation leaves room for Safety issues just walking on the streets with a bunch of people who might be intoxicated, especially if they haven't had the period of time that they usually would have to just like settle down and not just keep like I know there are some people who do like the drink have a drink every inning type of challenge, Mm. which is a lot of alcohol for any person to consume, and since they now have the ability to drink for seven innings instead of I don't well
3: it's nine instead of seven
2: nine instead of seven but apologies nine instead of seven. That's concerning. It can be a little scary. And I get that revenue is always an issue especially for sport sporting companies or like leagues in general just because like you spend so much money to just put on a game. But I think like, the safety of fans should be more on the forefront of this decision, especially
3: with like alcohol consumption.
1: Kevin, I know you said there wasn't really a decrease in sales. So there not like is there a big increase in sales at all, or is it just mainly the same average? It was the
3: it was staying the same uh, based on percentages of the last few years because obviously financially there's always an increase because the prices just go up. Yeah. So there's always the increase in actual income, but percentage wise it's stayed about the same as it's been the last few years. So it was. Kind of a a weird thing when when I'm following the situation that one day it's great news that sales aren't going down at all, and the next day, well, because of the shorter games, we're going to extend the sale of alcohol, but doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Doing that together, it's just, I, I think, a bad look. So I wonder if it sets a precedent for other sports leagues to start extending their alcohol sales, because for Major League Baseball, they can use the excuse that it's shorter, but now everyone else could just use the, well... Baseball did it, mm-hmm. so why can't we? Because football, you can't bypass the third quarter. Um, I'm not sure what every hockey arena's rules are, mm-hmm. but if a period ends, the, the final period of a hockey game, you can't go get a beer. Mm. So, in the closing stages of a hockey game, concessions are almost closed in the closing stages of a hockey game. So, it's it's going to be interesting to see mm-hmm. the, the fallout. And I'm waiting for the possible, I don't want to say inevitable, because I hope it doesn't happen, but... Fan leaves, stadium, drunk driving, crashes, mm-hmm. something happens. Like and the then story. the repercussion of that is going to be massive. Mm-hmm, the yeah. fallout is going to be huge for Major League Baseball. The
2: one thing that I could see that could counteract this is limiting fans to having one drink an inning. Which logistically could be a nightmare to figure out. But if you're allowing people to drink for nine innings, being like you can only have one drink that entire inning and not allowing people to like go up and get back-to-back drinks in an inning... That could help the issue.
1: Yeah, like you know, like the punch card or yeah, like, like doing two, something like that. that.
2: Give everybody a little punch card. But again, logistical nightmare. But I think that's that's an idea for how to keep fan safety at the forefront. You're still allowing people to get like at least nine drinks if and they do a drinking inning.
3: In but. reality, there's the people who really are desperate to go and drink at sports games. Drink until the end because they'll go before it closes and get a couple drinks Mm -hmm. and just save them. But still, it's just not a. uh, It
1: just doesn't make sense. Why not make it three strikes? You just get you get three drinks and then you're out. And then you're done. And then you're done. That's all you gotta do. If you
3: walk, if you go to a Yankee or Met game though, and you walk out, at least ten percent of people cannot walk (laughs) out. with you. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think, you know, maybe this is. The the league makes enough money as is. Mm-hmm. So at at some point you have to cut the greed aspect and the financial aspect of it and just say what's best for us overall?
1: Yeah. And how how's Boston with that Dallas? Oh what's my gosh. <laughs> Boston is Answer that question yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boston is
2: I've been to a lot of sporting events in Boston. Boston is a city that loves its beverages. <laughs> um Red Sox games. I've never been at like a seen something egregious, but I've seen like Kevin said, people who probably aren't prepared to walk out of the stadium with the final strike. I've seen it at hockey games. Bruins games are nuts because people drink heavily at Bruins games. Um, But it's just like
1: I think it's also just a culture of the sport thing. In general. Yeah, it's,
3: it's the demographic that you get to. Like, mm-hmm.
1: you're not going to a tennis game and you see everybody just down in Budweiser. No, that's
3: very, very, like, um, how do you even say, it's like upper class
1: yeah. drinks. Yeah. At, yeah. The, I've like been to like the U.S. Open. What, that's all I've been to. Mint julep right, at the Kentucky
2: Derby it feels, or something. It feels like tennis. The Kentucky Derby feels like different tax brackets of, yes. like, sporting event culture.
3: Yeah, I go to the U.S. Open and it's it's... You sip your drink at the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open, oh, you know? Like, like,
2: golf is up there, too. I feel like
3: golf is
1: at the yeah. same You know, I, I feel like golf should get more Happy Gilmore vibe. I think it should really get, like, pumped up about mm-hmm. golf. I can't get into golf. Did, I did apologize. Did
3: see whether you're into it or not? I'm into the big tournaments, so I watch the Masters. Did yeah. anybody see the menu for the Masters? The most expensive menu item at the Masters, you would think, massive golf tournament. It's probably really expensive. It's a $5 glass of wine because they have never changed their prices. Yeah, the, the egg
1: sandwich, I know, has oh, wow. always been a dollar.
3: Yeah, it's, dollar dollar egg salad sandwich, yeah. and you can't-
1: bring, bring back energy like that. Like, they just have
3: the cheapest food. They uh-huh. never change the prices.
1: But I think it's also important to note, I'm sure they get a lot of sponsorship money from Mercedes-Benz, oh, yeah. a couple other corporations 100%. that probably allow them to keep that, and probably also membership fees mm-hmm. at Augusta are insanely expensive. So- Granted, there's always that, but good good thing yeah. they're not changing prices. I mean, hey, I just hate that, that a hot
2: dog at like Fenway Park is like eight dollars. Mm. And I'm a big, I love hot dogs. The Fenway Frank fam- is that? Fenway a- Frank is the best hot dog you can eat anywhere, and I will live and die on that
3: hill. Garden's got a good one, Madison Square Garden. I I had it. I didn't like it. I had it. I didn't like it. Yeah, you know, I'm getting a lot of those reviews, which I'm starting to think maybe I just had like a rare good one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of people are starting to say that. (laughs) It was big with love, Kevin. It was.
2: Uh, I I was at MSG one time, and I had a hot dog, and I was just like, this hot dog is
3: Well, I've been a bunch of times, and I know we're running out of time here, but I've been a bunch of times to MSG, and I only got this experience once where Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is really good. So maybe it was an outlier. Mm Mm-hmm. You're the
2: special
1: dog. Well, what's not an outlier is our show today because it's been a great time. I hope you all have enjoyed it. Please enjoy your week. Have fun. I know we got uh, we got off the charts coming up again, coming up in just a minute or so. Uh, and granted, we will see you all next week uh, when, oh gosh, it's going to be May, I think, after that. No, sorry. No, 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 yeah. It'll be May after after the 25th show. We'll be uh, already in the month of May. But we will see you all uh, next week. So have fun.